Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Many of us, most of us, bring a lot of expectation to the Christmas season. Traditions, experiences, friend and family time, and every single part of it must bring us maximum joy, or we're disappointed. You have to decorate on this day. Watch that movie, right? And everyone knows inside of their head the family liturgy, what Christmas Eve and Christmas morning and Christmas Day is supposed to go like every single year. And that's not counting the expectations that kids put on it. Kids, especially elementary and younger, had these expectations and dreams of presence under the tree. And I think that by the time they're age 10 or 11, their expectation is a, is, is a, is a gathering of every past Christmas. So it's not just eight or 10 presents, they're thinking 60 or 100 should be under the tree. And it's not uncommon for a late elementary school kid to look at the tree and think, is that it? Is that all there is? What's hiding in the back? They come with that honesty of expectation that Sally, Charlie Brown's little sister, has when she has her long Christmas list and Charlie Brown uggs at her materialism. And Sally says, I just want what's coming to me. I just want my fair share. Whether you're a kid or an adult with great expectations for Christmas, no Christmas season can support the weight of hope and expectation we put on it. And so it's hard not to experience Christmas dissonance. And this can be particularly acute if you are somebody who has dealt with loss or suffering, deep hurts and wounds, or had longings and prayers that were never met. I mean, thankfully, that's probably only two or three people in this room. But, you know, it's why Advent is such a gift. Because Advent matches 
real life better than songs about silver bells and chestnuts roasting. Advent says life is heavy. It is often sad. It often causes us to sigh and groan and to recognize things are not right. Advent is a season of longing for things to be made right, but it's also a season of hope that it will one day be. What if, what if all you've ever wanted in life is not really what you want? What I mean is this. What if all the things you pursue in life, like success or friendships or a happy family, whatever it is that you're putting all your eggs in, what if the things you pursue in life are only a shadow of what you're actually made for? I think this is true, and I think the evidence can be found in our regular disappointment and dissatisfaction in life. If we're not made for more, then why does it hurt so much when you don't get what you really want, when you don't get into the college of your dreams, or you really desperately want kids and you cannot have them? And on the flip side of that, it's our dissatisfaction when we do get what we want. What happens when you get what you want? The thing you're after? You realize pretty quickly it's not enough. An addict, an addict is insatiable. The more he has, the more he needs in order to satisfy the craving and get the same rush. You get that, right? The thing is, we're all addicts. And it's not just our vices, although it's those things too. It's even the good things we must have. That, that I say, I have to have that. If my career gets to here, if I have this much in my retirement, if I can vacation in these places, if I have these friends, this kind of a girlfriend, these type of kids, then I'll be happy. But what happens when you get there? Even though your kids are, are so perfectly well-behaved, they're not perfect enough, and you're always riding them. Even though your career is up here, you recognize, well, somebody else's is up there. We're never satisfied even when we get what we want. What if what we're really looking for in these other things that we tend to pursue is actually God? Augustine, hundreds of years ago, said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. And I would add to that, our hungers, our hungers are insatiable until our souls, to the very tips of their toes, are filled with God. What are you fed up with and done with in this life? What things are you just done with? Let me name a few that I'm done with. I'm done with social drama. And I don't just mean that in the parental sort of, ugh, stop the drama. What I mean is I see the pain that kids go through from age 13 to 18 that involves social climbing and constant comparing and kids being excluded and regrouping and the challenge of finding friendship and identity in, in social circles. And there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of kids who end up getting hurt. If you're 13 to 17, you've either observed this been on the receiving end of this, 
or you've been the deliverer of this. And I'm sad to say that when you're older, it doesn't change. I'm done with that exclusion and pain. I'm also done with marriage breakdown. Two people can hurt each other so much, and it is so painful. They say, I love you, and 10 years later, they're ready to kill each other. And it is so painful and sad. I'm also done with my own sin. What I want to do, I do not do. What I hate to do, I do. And with Paul, I say, who will rescue me? I'm done with focusing on myself, and yet I can't escape myself. And I'm also done with death. I'm kind of fed up with death. There is not an age that is right for death. 92, 39, 12, an in-the-womb baby. We are made to live forever. And our anger and pain and sorrow is not fully satisfied because death is constantly there, and I'm done with it. Dogs bite, bees sting, and feeling sad happens. And simply remembering your favorite things doesn't make it all better. We need something more. It's what we really want. And you know what we're longing for? It's actually heaven. That's what you're actually longing for. You look for it in everything else. We all do. But what you're really longing for is what you're made for, and that's eternity. Listen to what Isaiah says in his prophecy about the day of the Lord, starting in verse 6. On that day, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Jumping down to verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. On one level, this is just weird sounding. It's just strange, okay? I mean, it's talking about a, a toddler playing with a snake as if it's a toy. It's talking about a kindergartner and a lion and some veal playing tag. It's just strange. And it's strange because it's so dissonant from our experience, and it sounds like a fairy tale. But what it's actually trying to get at is a word that isn't even mentioned in this passage, but is very Hebraic in its understanding. It's the idea of shalom. Shalom means peace, but it's actually far deeper than that. Shalom means wholeness, no longer broken and sick, no longer breaking down. It means harmony, no more divorce or exclusion or betrayal or war. It means well-being, prosperity, not suffering and oppression. What this is talking about is the day when there is eternal shalom, when all wrongs are righted. And it says, they shall not hurt or destroy. There'll be no more suffering or violence or pain or death or sin. And what this is assuring us is that God intends this creation to be renewed and restored 
to lift the curse and return us to Eden, to let us live as we are made to live. It's the thing that our deepest longings cry out for. You know, the root of our dissonance and dissatisfaction with the world in which we live goes back to the garden, right? You read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam and Eve want their freedom from God. They want to be their own lords. We'll call it their God project. Their God project was to be God themselves. So they eat of the fruit. Why? Because it looked good, it tasted good, and even after eating it, it felt good to them. By all external standards, go ahead and eat. But the choice to do so was a choice to be free from God, and God let them be free from Him. And instantly, if you read through that Genesis 3 account, you see that freedom from God means that we're now apart from God. And when you're apart from God, you are no longer reconciled to Him, and as a result, you're no longer reconciled to one another. Adam and Eve are at odds with each other. You're no longer reconciled to creation. It's now trying to kill you, and you're not even reconciled to yourself anymore. We're constantly struggling with identity and purpose and guilt and frustration, and all because we want freedom from God. And God says, go ahead. Adam and Eve are driven from Eden, from the presence of God and the shalom that was theirs when he was there with them. And as a result, now all of us live east of Eden, if you would. Things aren't right because we, by nature, are apart from God. And all of us are following our own God project. You know, the chasm between our longings and fulfillment is because our hungers are broken. What I think I need may not be what I really need. And I would go so far as to say, if Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is actually right, then our very nature, including maybe even, probably even, our genetics are fallen. And I should not assume that just because I'm wired for something, it means it's what God intended. Geneticists, scientists have been able to show that there's a genetic predisposition for everything from alcoholism to violence to a sweet tooth. Evolutionary theorists posit that men are predisposed genetically to prefer multiple partners. You're made for it. Go ahead, guys. Why not? Why not? If, it, if it's what I want, and I'm even wired for it, why not? All of our longings all of our longings, we have to assume, are bent towards our own God project. I want what I want. We have sought Eden and heaven on our own, and we're separated from God, the very thing we really want and need. What do we really need? To see and taste shalom now and forever requires being reconciled to God, and that means we need God's justice. We read in the beginning part of chapter 11, Isaiah giving the prophecy that God will come to make things right, 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite, if you're in Jerusalem in that day, and you read that first part, you say, yeah, this is good. You see, Jesse was the father of David, the great king of Israel. And God made a promise that one day a son would come from David who would establish a kingdom and they would reign in peace and shalom. So they're hearing that first verse and they're saying, this is great. The king, the good king is finally coming. Isaiah goes on to say, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. And then he goes on to say, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. The first part of that, verse 2, sounds really good. When this king comes, the Messiah comes to right all wrongs, to make things better, he's going to come in the power of the Spirit. That's great. We need God to come. But he's coming as judge. Oh. Now, at, at its root, we get this. Judgment is necessary for things to be righted. We actually want justice. All of us are born with this desire for justice. And everyone agrees that certain people should have judgment. Violent people, oppressors, they deserve judgment. The hard part is Isaiah says, Writing this world and writing us goes much deeper and much more personal. Things are broken in every culture and in every person. Jesus, according to John the Baptist, the Messiah, has come. And when He comes, He will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. That means he's coming in the power of God, in the presence of God, but also to right wrongs, which means to bring God's presence and judgment. Isaiah knew that the world needed God's true justice to reconcile us to him. That's how we are righted and this world is righted. Shalom is found when we are reconciled to God through his justice. But also, shalom must be found in the presence of God. You can't get it on your own. The second half of verse 9, after all this talk about lions and, and, and cows and, and kids playing together, Isaiah gives the means by which all of this will happen. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You want Eden, you need the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Knowledge in Hebrew, in a Hebraic understanding, is relational and experiential. It's not just, I know about something. It's personal. It means you're loved and understood, like, she knows me. And it also implies commitment and assurance. You are loved. We look for this knowledge, this knownness, in friendships and in family. But no friend or marriage, can meet the need to be known that we have. Our desires are too great for any one person or group of people to bear. We need relationship with God. We need to know Him. And the second part of that phrase is, as the waters cover the sea, 
This is a really strange phrase, and N.T. Wright, a theologian, he actually nailed it when he said this, how can the waters cover the sea? They are the sea. He goes on to say, it looks as though God intends to flood the universe with himself, as though the entire cosmos was designed as a receptacle for his love. God intends, in the end, to fill all creation with his own presence and love. God is intending not to destroy it all, but to enter and embrace it and give himself fully to the world. Oh, and he already did that, right? In Jesus, God entered the fullness of broken and fallen humanity and creation. In Jesus, God brought justice by bearing our judgment on himself. And in Jesus, God offers us shalom, the chance to be reconciled and restored to our Creator. The Christian hope for our lives involves dropping our God project in place of the Jesus one. That's it. Drop your God project and fully trust the Jesus one. We live in an in-between time. Christian theologians call it the already but not yet. The already but not yet is that we already who are in, in Christ get to experience the joys of God's presence, although not yet in full. We get the taste of reconciliation with our Father, but not yet in full. But we live in the already. And I'm here to say that the Bible talks about the hope of Christianity is, and the experience of many is, that you can actually experience God and shalom now. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in those whose faith is in Christ with a view and a longing for what God is going to do in this creation, you can live in the presence and shalom of God even now. A religious person says food and drink and sex and fun are bad. Avoid them so you can get to heaven. A secular person says food and drink and sex and fun are all there is. Carpe diem, seize the day, get your heaven now because when you die, it's done. But a Christian says, all the things of this life find their true purpose and their telos, their goal and end in God, but only when ordered under His Lordship. But there is an opportunity to live this life experiencing the presence of God. I'm going to give you three ways to think about it. One is this life as appetizer, meaning a foretaste of what's to come. Let the things that you enjoy most, the things you want to last forever, point you to eternity. N.T. Wright, in the second half of the passage that we had just read, said this, the world is a beautiful place, not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but because it is pointing forward, it is designed to be filled, flooded, drenched in God. As a chalice is beautiful, not least because of what we know it is designed to contain. Or a violin is beautiful, not least because we know the music of which it is capable. 
The very best things in life now are a beautiful violin that points you to an eternity when music will be played on that violin. Enjoy it now as a foretaste of what's to come. And that includes anything that brings you satisfying joy, like a job that is finished and a project that is done and you know you've worked hard at it, a great novel or movie that you are experiencing, the perfect vacation. All of these things should point us to heaven when the joys will not be momentary and the movie will not end. Sledding with friends and kids after the blizzard is an appetizer of the eternal banquet to come. Already that is yours. Another way to talk about this is the sacramental life. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The hope of Isaiah, the hope of Christianity, is that creation matters. And that means we can see and experience God in the mundane, in the real life, in the tangible things. The Celtic Christians talked about thin places, thin places being those areas of life where it seems like heaven and earth are, are, are really close together. When you are in Christ and seeing the world through the Spirit, you begin to see those thin places more and more. Sometimes it's when you're alone and there's a big starry night, but you can experience the thin places even in the deepest sorrows and sacredness of a deathbed. You can see God there. I've seen and tasted it in friendship with people that have shared experiences, have been a part of joys and laughter with me, but also a part of sorrows. I hear and see and touch, in a sense, God, because I'm known and loved and get to return that. Eugene Peterson suggests friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of bread and wine, friendship takes what is common in human experience and turns it into something holy. Look at your life. Look at the God who made you and redeemed you, and you'll begin to see those thin places the ones that are where God shows up. The already life is an appetizer of what's to come, a sacrament of the grace and presence of God, and we can already experience the Spirit-filled life now. You know, faith in Christ means this. God dwells in you. It's called the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit, God offers you shalom, the assurance that you are forgiven and loved, and His presence is with you now. It's his, his assurance, you are my son, you are my daughter, by grace. You cannot lose that. You do nothing to achieve it. And that's why you actually can't find heaven or shalom or God's love by trying harder or being really good. You're not going to find them in the perfect marriage or the greatest career or the approval of friends. 
Those things will fall short of your need and desire. But if you're willing to drop the God project of your life in exchange for the Jesus one, you might just find the life you're looking for. Let's pray. God, we look forward to the day when the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, when he shall reign forever and ever. We live in the dissonance of longings unmet, of brokenness and sin, of pain and death, but we have the hope of God for us, God in us, and the God who will one day be with us and be all in all. In his name we pray. Amen.